Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you enjoy Unchained or Unconfirmed, my other podcast, which now features a weekly news recap after every interview, please give us a top rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. This helps other listeners find out about my podcast. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost with no fees or markups. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Want more? Download the Crypto.com app today. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. My guest today is Christian Catalini, co-creator of Libra and head economist at Calibra. Welcome, Christian. It's a pleasure to be here, Laura. Libra has been one of the biggest crypto stories of the year, though we will talk about whether or not this is being usurped from that status. But first, let's dive into your background. What were you doing before you got involved with Libra and how did you become its co-creator? So I started uh, getting interested in cryptocurrencies and blockchain around 2013 uh, when we uh, co-designed the research study around the MIT Bitcoin experiment. And after that, um, uh, a lot of my research really developed closer and closer to uh, different applications of blockchain, its potential for you know, democratizing access to financial services, and to really trigger a new wave of innovation uh, across a variety of different industry verticals. From there, uh, at some point, I was in touch with uh, Morgan Beller, who at the time was exploring you know, a number of different ideas around how Facebook could be active in the blockchain space. And we were discussing actually a research project, uh, you know, how, how can we use a cryptocurrency or a blockchain application to really build on financial inclusion, uh, potentially as a small scale experiment in, in, in a region. Uh, you know, from there, conversation became much more serious. And uh, at some point, uh, I, I visited Menlo Park and David there, who was still at Messenger, was starting to think about building a team uh, around this effort. And uh, that's when it really became clear that, uh, you know, if I, if I wanted to, to kind of help shape this, I, I would have to go and leave and take this on as a full-time effort. Now, the idea being that uh, we had a blank slate. We had, uh, you know, fairly aligned mission on, on really building on blockchain and cryptocurrency to deliver financial inclusion. And from there, there were just, you know, a very long series of hard technical problems on the economic side, on the engineering computer science side. Uh, that we would have to solve over over the next months 
to come up with an initial prototype and design for what this new type of network could look like. And just uh, for reference going forward, when you said David, you were talking about David Marcus, who is the former president of PayPal, used to be a board member at Coinbase, and is now head of Calibra. I'm sure his name will come up again. Um, so didn't, during this time, before you guys went public with your plans with Libra, when you were brainstorming and, des and designing the system, what did that process look like? Like, how did you define the problem? And then how did you come up with Libra as the solution? And, you know, what were the different design choices you considered and like decided against? Or, you know, what, why did you decide on the design choices you made? Yes. Uh, you know, what, what was interesting is that, and, and this was something where uh, the initial team was really aligned on, was we wanted to start from the problem we were trying to solve. Having been following, you know, the cryptocurrency space for, for multiple years, uh, I was kind of frustrated by the fact that I saw so much potential in the technology. But on the other hand, when you looked at its potential to actually deliver on that potential, there were big gaps uh, in, in many different aspects. So if you think about, you know, last mile issues in in delivering a service around remittances or all sort of use cases that I thought were re really exciting and had the potential to help uh, a large segment of the population that is excluded or, or underserved by the current system. Uh, that's, that's where, you know, we started from. We started from this idea that it was clear to us that the technology was ideal for, for expanding access, for providing new types of services at a lower cost and on a global scale. Uh, at the same time, there were, uh, you know, massive challenges in terms of scaling, in terms of uh, different trade-offs that you have to make when you're trying to take that, that idea and that vision uh, into something that can actually be built. And so the, the initial months uh, were, you know, intensive R&D months. And I, I think what, what I, you know, when I look back at those months, what was most exciting was really that we had talent from different domains of expertise, people with deep experience in building, you know, uh, large-scale products, people with deep expertise in scaling engineering systems and, you know, data centers, people with a background in cryptography, and, and also people with, you know, a lot of admiration for what was happening in the cryptocurrency space. So we, we looked at, you know, very much every possible permutation of uh, either technological solution, uh, building on existing new rails, and uh, it became very clear that for what we were trying to do, uh, we would have to take a slightly different approach. And I'm sure that, you know, if you look at the choices we've made, different people will have different opinions if, if those are good choices or not. But they all really boil down to this idea of like, how do we create an extremely efficient, cheap, fast uh, medium of exchange uh, that can help, you know, all sort of cross-border activity, uh, starting, of course, with remittances, which we saw as a major use case where people were uh, charge exorbitant fees. Uh, you know, if you look at the World Bank data, I think the average is about 7%, but that really hides a wide dispersion around that 7%. So in some regions, uh, intra-regional uh, exchanges in Africa can charge you as much as 20, 30%. And that, that's simply, you know, unacceptable. Um, so starting from those challenges, uh, it became, you know, clear that, for example, we needed to prioritize the asset, the coin, uh, having intrinsic value. And, and of course, that comes with some drawbacks from from an architectural standpoint, because now you have a reserve, uh, which you really want to make sure is not kind of a central point of failure. But it, it was really important to us to have an asset that wouldn't be speculative and that wouldn't provide wide swings in, in volatility. 
because we realized if that were the case uh, and you had you know, a large number of people accessing this network, it could also be extremely harmful. Uh, so that's where we started around this first concept of stability and bringing in kind of intrinsic value behind the coin. The, the other next uh, you know, design decision that was, you know, of course, debated in, in every possible direction was like the permission setup. So the idea that we had to start with a set of permission nodes. And, and that really boils down from two things. The first one is that, you know, when you look at a lot of the really talented engineering and R&D happening in the cryptocurrency space, uh, there's no solution at scale, at the moment at least, uh, that either through proof of work or proof of stake can support a network um, uh, at the scale that we, we hope Libra can reach. And, and so working backwards, we realized we needed to kind of bootstrap the entire system from from trust that's already established you know, offline. And that's where the trusted brands and initial institutions come into play. They're kind of seeding this new network, uh, securing it, defending it, and trying to scale it together. Now, of course, you know, as an economist, when I look at, at a permission setup, you know, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is, is a taxi medallion system. And so it's, uh, you know, you, you get an immediate aversion to that. And that's why, you know, the Libra setup, although permissioned, has some important tweaks that often are not talked about, but I think are really important from an economics perspective. So, you know, you start with a set of 100 founding members and nodes, but really what you introduce over time is competition. So, you know, when I look at permissionless, I think permissionless is one of these words that, that really embeds many different things to many different people. As an economist, what matters to me the most about permissionless is the idea that anybody can compete, anybody can build on top of the system, anybody can, can have the same degree of access. So if I'm a startup, I should be able to be fully interoperable and, and, and you know, play on the same level and playing field, either with a large uh, financial incumbent or, or a tech incumbent. Well, if, we, if we can use the same rail, if we have the same degree of access to the network, uh, that, that dimension of permissionless to me is really important. Now, that, that applies both to the network level, right? If you have a number of nodes operating the network, you want competition for being a node so that over time, the best node operators, the people that know how to secure and scale the network are the ones in charge of the infrastructure. But you also want, and this is actually more subtle, and it's, you know, we have a paper on market design uh, with some researchers at Harvard where we're looking at market market equilibrium level implications of different consensus models, something that was really important uh, to at least the economics team in the early days. And, and again, I want to preface that a lot of what I'm discussing were the ideas as originally incubated within Facebook. But as you know now, a lot of this is transitioning over to the association. So going forward, uh, this won't be just Facebook effort in terms of uh, refining the design. But going back to kind of the, you know, the aspects of permissionless that really mattered to us was like, if we want this network to be true uh, shared infrastructure that everybody can build and compete on, then we also need to make sure that there's not new ver- vectors of concentration. So if you take something like proof of work, which I think is extremely effective to solve certain types of problems, it also leads to extreme concentration on other dimensions. Uh, take about, you know, for example, mining. Uh, mining fairly concentrated, just not just from an operational perspective, but also from a hardware and infrastructure perspective, right? So anyone that can get a big leap in R&D on mining uh, can control indirectly a big part of the ecosystem. Uh, similarly, you know, I think we've seen also in uh, proof of work chains, concentration in custody. And so once you start thinking about all these problems, it, it, it really doesn't become clear what the best model should be. 
for a network that can start potentially with a set of uh, founding members, but really expand and become more open and competitive. So that's where, you know, we started tweaking a number of different dimensions. And, and again, the design is, is far from complete. And that's why uh, when we when we announced, the idea was to gather a lot of uh, feedback and ideas and, and really crowdsource part of the iterations, both around the open source code base, but also around some of the economic principle of, uh, of Libra. Wow. So we're going to unpack so much of what you described there. Thank you so much for your really full and considered answer. I actually wanted to ask a little bit more about this period when you guys were planning. So as you have probably seen, um, <laughs> after you released the white paper, you know, there, there was a pretty strong reaction from regulators. Um, but I do know that before you guys did publish the white paper, that you also actually did spend some time talking with regulators. So were you aware that they would have such serious concerns and that there would be kind of such big blowback around, you know, your history with things like the Cambridge Analytica data breach or how, you know, Russia used Facebook to try to influence the 2016 election? Like, was that part of your strategy you know, as well, but before you release the white paper, like, did you have an awareness that would happen? So first of all, again, we realized that this is a regulated space and that we would need to engage with regulators even before announcement. And so that's what we did. We had extensive meetings, uh, both in the U.S. and, and abroad. Uh, of course, you know, there's a broader constituency that, that um, is interested in this. And so after announcement, I, I think things scaled up uh, substantially. You know, on your point about Facebook kind of being the initial messenger of this, I think it's also important to to remind ourselves that we were able to make a number of choices that are pretty innovative and new uh, in this space, at least for, for tech. It's very rare for, for a tech company uh, to make some of the choices that we were able to make on the protocol, uh, exactly because I think there was an understanding within Facebook that a new model for trust in digital platforms, uh, a new model for, you know, you know, exploring different business models was really important to, to be developed. And so, you know, when, when you look at the design of Libra, it's not meant to be kind of a wallet garden or kind of a silent solution. I think there's been very successful payment solutions that are kind of fairly, fairly centralized and have digitized cash in other regions of the globe. This is not what Libra is really about. It, it's kind of the opposite. And, and so, although it was incubated at Facebook, now passing over uh, governance and control, Facebook is now only one of 21 members as October 14th of 2019 at the association. With this new distributed governance structure, I think there's a real commitment to interoperability, to ensuring that this is a network where you can have low switching costs and where ultimately, you know, consumers across the globe and merchants and other service providers will have will have more choice. Um, that, that was really the core of, you know, the, the original economic principles uh, around the network. And um, and again, I think we, we were aware that we would uh, face a high degree of scrutiny uh, when you try to innovate in any regulated industry. Uh, by design, I think you know what you're what you're designing, what you're pushing out will not fit exactly into the existing regulatory frameworks because because it's new, and uh, you know it would have been hard for uh, regulators writing laws uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago to predict that technology like blockchain could come around and you could build marketplaces in this new way. And, and so this is the phase we're in. Uh, I think there's uh, a number of very constructive feedback coming uh, from many of the regulators and the technical staff from central banks to institutions like the SEC and others. And it's been extremely helpful. Uh, in a sense, you know, we, we want to be aware of what the challenges are, of what the questions are. 
And we want to make sure that the network really can fulfill its promise and, and its mission. So, you know, if we launch something that didn't fit into, into the regulatory framework or didn't address some of the concerns of central banks or other uh, stakeholders, uh, we, we would have failed anyways. And so this phase, although it's difficult, of course, because, you know, you, you see a lot of pressure in many different directions, is one of very intense design and fine-tuning of that initial concept. And, uh, you know, what's exciting to me is that, you know, now it's not just us incubating internally uh, within the Calibra team, but it's uh, the other the other 20 founding members, uh, many of which have deep expertise in other verticals. Uh, you know, there's NGOs and nonprofits, for example, that, that really understand what it means to operate in regions of the globe where people don't have any access to financial services and where even issues like KYC and identity are extremely problematic. Uh, you have universities that can bring a lot of expertise on some of these topics. And, and then you have players that I think really believe that a network of this type could streamline their operations. And so there's a, you know, a fairly selfish business objective there of reducing costs and reducing frictions within their own operations. And th- those are the kind of players that I think are needed in this phase uh, because, as you know, a lot of pressure, a lot of regulatory pulls and, and pushes in different directions. Uh, but if we can get the design right, I think it'll be a very constructive phase. Yeah. And to dive into that a little bit more, uh, I noticed that your criteria for Libra Association members are that they should have a market value of more than a billion dollars or more than $500 million in customer balances and must reach more than 20 million people a year multi-annually. And you have slightly different standards for like crypto investing companies or blockchain infrastructure companies. But I was curious because, um, you know, it seemed like you guys were being so strategic in the ways you thought about who you brought on. And obviously, when you initially announced, you had uh, a number of payments companies, but now Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, booking companies, and all those had to leave, or or they decided to leave, Stripe, others. So what, what goals were you trying to accomplish by having so many payment companies as members? And what does that mean now for the project that almost all the payment companies have left? Yeah, so, you know, and this is part of really that idea of an open technology standard. So bootstrapping a platform that can have real utility from the early days. You know, any network like Libra has a massive two-sided network effects problem. You need users and you need applications, right? So for the coin to be useful and for the coin to be a good vehicle for something like a remittance or a cross-border payment, well, there need to be uh, on and off ramps and people need to be able to come in and out very effectively, uh, especially at the beginning, right? Is, uh, what what oh, you can like expect for conversion? is... Yeah, for conversion. Um, uh. So the the idea of bringing around founding members was twofold. So first of all, uh, these are institutions that have a brand, they have a reputation at stake. And so when you think about, for example, uh, many of the permutations that we're seeing in the space around proof of stake models, one of the challenges is, the, as you all know, the nothing at stake issue. And so you can think of the seeding group as a way to work around the nothing at stake problem of, of a proof of stake model. Um, by bringing in these this trusted brands, we were trying to bootstrap the network and ensure that essentially, you know, if you're running a node, you have a lot more to lose by not operating it correctly uh, because your brand is on the line. You know, to your more specific question about changes in the composition, this is a difficult journey. And, uh, you know, as you know, there's been all sort of different pressure, uh, much of which was public. Uh, and so many of these payment companies, of course, are regulated uh, institutions and they were under additional pressure, uh, especially in this phase of uncertainty. But it's really important to remember that the platform is open. So you, you can be 
you don't need to be a founding member to build a product on this platform. And, and so I think there's also reasons uh, for many of these players and other players uh, to kind of wait and see, get the founding member to kind of shepherd this through through this difficult phase where you know there's, there's additional pressure and then and then come and build one, one, once that is resolved. So again, uh, of course, it's a setback because when you think about on and off ramps, uh, payment companies uh, play a major role. Uh, PayU is still a member of the association and they're very active in many of the important markets, uh, especially from a financial inclusion perspective. But more broadly, I think my sense is that, you know, over time, the association will be able to expand its, its founding member set. And, and so the goal is still to launch with, you know, maybe is it 60, is it 100 uh, founding members at launch? And, and that set will actually be much more global in nature, will represent many different verticals. Uh, the idea is really to seed the network with the best possible players to ensure that, that this thing is useful and, and solves people's problems. It was reported that Libra will be made up of 50% U.S. dollars and U.S. bonds, 18% euro assets, 14% Japanese yen, 11% British pound, 7% Singaporean dollars. And I know, obviously, you had this goal to create the most stable currency. But so, you know, I'm not a Forex person. I was trying to do some research on this. As far as I can understand, you know, currencies basically just have re- value in relation to each other. And when I was literally Googling things like, what is the most stable currency? Like, none of the sites were giving the same answers. So then I started to wonder whether there was any kind of objective measurement of this. And so basically, I was just wondering, how did you define stability for the globe? Because I think that will basically impact different populations differently. And so, you know, from there, how did you end up deciding on this, on these assets and this mix? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, first of all, again, the, the percentages uh, are just a proposal. And right now, you know, there will be a work stream at the association. And so all the founding members will work together on that final composition and in evolving the concept of the basket. Uh, from our perspective, uh, the objective has always been thinking about value preservation, right? So if you're using the network, if you're trusting this network with, with some of your savings that maybe you're trying to send abroad as a remittance, how can we ensure that that promise is kept? And so, you know, we, we wanted the network to be global in nature. Otherwise, you could have imagined, you know, pegging it uh, just to the U.S. dollar. Now, the, the advantages of the basket, and again, there's a history here that traces back to some of the concept that the IMF, for example, has been working on with the SDR, is that when you think about the perspective of many different foreign countries, uh, if you're pegged to only one asset, uh, now you, you're really susceptible to the volatility and, and, and variation that's coming from that one single one. Now, for some regions of the globe, it may not matter because they're already fairly dollarized. But uh, from a more global angle and a more global perspective, one of the key advantages of the basket is that first you have a diversified set of assets, uh, but also that you know, it's, it's a kind of a more global representation of a set of central banks that have a history of stability, low inflation, and really strong independence. Um, so that, that was the inspiration around the basket. I, something that I want to demystify is, you know, often this is considered as a basket stable coin. You can't really build a global stable coin, right? It's an oxymoron. Prices and basket of goods and services that people consume in different regions of the globe, even within the same country, if you think about you know, rural versus urban parts of, of different uh, countries, are fundamentally different. And so that's, that's also behind the idea that Libra should not have any role in monetary policy, simply because, you know, it's, it's not the role of a, an association of this type to, to help people smooth consumption around that basket. 
what what something like the reserve can do though is ensure that in aggregate uh, you're, you're kind of backing the coin with assets that provide stability, low inflation, and and guarantee you know a lower spread relative to your local currency. Now, of course, you know if you live in a country uh, that's going through hyperinflation or that has wide swings in, in volatility in their own region, uh, Libra will be volatile ag- against that. There's no there's no way to buffer that. And and this is where you know I think when you, when you think about what what Libra is useful for, it, it's really useful for cross border payments, remittances, things where people are already uh, incurring a lot of effects fees and conversion fees, uh, a lot of additional fees added through the value chain. And if you do have this global medium of exchange, you can not only cut a bunch of middlemen out of the picture, but you can also streamline uh, that operation and, and offer something that um, you know we, we believe would be a valuable additional toolkit in, in somebody's digital wallet. So I'm glad that you brought up the IMF special drawing rights basket, because as you probably know, in 2016, uh, they did add the Chinese renminbi to to that. And so I wondered if you ever thought it would make sense for the Libra Association to use Chinese currency to back Libra. So again, this is a decision uh, that the association uh, would have to make uh, in the future. Uh, we, we started mostly from you know, historical conditions of stability, low volatility, and low inflation. And so the, the five sets uh, that are in the proposed basket um, were, were selected that way. Uh, so that's how you know, the, the basket was defined. And so, so basically, you know, you're saying it's out of my hands, but do you think it could ever make sense? Again, that's a decision for the Libra Association to make in the future. And so let's say that at some point they decided that the renminbi would be part of Libra. If after that, the Chinese government came to the Libra Association or even to Calibra and said, hey, we want you to block access to uh, Libra tokens for these specific Hong Kongers or for these specific Chinese dissidents, would the fact that Libra holds renminbi in the reserve give any weight to their request? Or like, would they be able to harm the Libra in any way if you didn't, if they didn't comply? Or like, you know, how do you think the Libra Association would respond to that? Yeah, I think, you know, taking, taking a step back first, um, I think if the association were to, in the future, expand the basket, uh, they would have to consider all the possible ramifications of that decision anyways. It's important to remind um, that you know the basket is not meant to be actively managed. So the idea is to set it and, and keep it stable that way for, for a long period of time. Uh, to your more specific question about uh, you know conditions uh, and censorship within a c- certain country or a certain region, uh, something that's important to realize is that all the wallets and custodians uh, operating in a region will have to comply being kind of financially regulated entities with the rules and regulation of that country. Uh, so if a wallet is operating in China or any other region, uh, they would have to follow you know, whatever the restrictions are of that specific region. So this is already true uh, in the network as it's currently designed. So I, I don't think it would be any different in the scenario you described. Oh, okay. Actually, from Mark, from Mark Zuckerberg's testimony, it wasn't totally clear to me if it was possible just from the way he answered his questions, it seemed like it might be possible to create anonymous wallets, but you're saying that every single wallet will be KYC'd? So there will be, you know, non-custodial wallets on, on the public chain. And, uh, you know, what, what's important to consider, though, is that many of the, essentially all of the on and off ramps, uh, the authorized resellers and exchanges that are authorized uh, will essentially 
apply KYC, AML. And there's a new framework that the association is working on to really kind of describe all of these different aspects. Okay. So then I'm sure you've heard this question before, but so if, if that's the case, then how, how will that affect your goal of banking the unbanked who maybe in many cases don't have really strong uh, identity verification? Yeah. And, you know, this is where it's really great that uh, there are founding members that are really active um, uh, from an NGO perspective in regions where that's exactly the problem you describe. Uh, I think over time, the hope is really to lift up uh, KYC and identity standards, uh, maybe even in collaboration with international organizations that can help you. Let's say you're working in a refugee camp or in a condition where uh, you do need a trusted intermediary, like could be a, a global NGO, uh, to certify that this person actually should be allowed on the network. You know, going back to the broader problem of last mile issues, this is not something that we can solve in, in, in one single swoop. It will take time. And especially on the unbanked, I think the promise is in regions where uh, you already have uh, wide smartphone penetration and people may be using you know, the, the, the classic $30 uh, Android device and may have access to data. Uh, that's where you can start. Uh, you do need often uh, that in combination with strong uh, identity. Uh, you know, some regions have made good progress on this. If you think about India, others are, are lagging behind. Uh, but it will be, you know, it will be a, a long-term effort. And I think there's, um, a, among the founding members, many of them feel this problem of identity because they're operating in many different countries. Often they have to deal with cash. And, and so I think you will see the, the financial inclusion piece uh, advance, especially together with, with broader, broader infrastructure around identity and KYC. Um, again, it won't, it won't happen overnight, uh, but I think the NGOs can play a major role in, in really identifying solutions that, uh, that fill uh, both the void from you know, people that come without strong identification, uh, but also without excluding them completely from the network. And this is where uh, you know, the, the public chain allowing for small cash-like transactions uh, could be quite, quite meaningful. We're going to discuss more about how Libra can help bank the unbanked. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you'll find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Crypto.com sees the future of cryptocurrency in every wallet. Have you seen the MCO Visa card? A metal card powered by crypto. Loaded with perks including up to 5% back on all your spending and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. What's not to love? With Crypto.com, not only can you spend your crypto, but you can grow it too. Earn up to 6% per year on the most popular coins like BTC, XRP, LTC, and up to 12% per year on stable coins like PAX or TUSD. Just a few taps before you start receiving interest every week. Join the over 1 million others and download the Crypto.com app today. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? 
Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the privacy-enhanced compliance initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Back to my conversation with Christian Catalini. So actually, before we talk a little bit more about this unbanked issue, I was curious to hear how Calibra and Facebook will make money from your efforts here. Yeah, so there, there's a number of dimensions where something like Calibra is, is a complement to Facebook uh, existing business model. So what's interesting is that when you think about, you know, our remittances are happening today, people may be going to a kiosk or, you know, a store and... Um, essentially pay for a remittance, take a picture of the receipt and send it over a messaging app somewhere across the globe. So ironically, those transactions are kind of already happening, facilitated through the platform. Uh, the additional challenge being that people pay very heavy fees on, on, on that leg, uh, on that little trip of data across the globe. And so, you know, you can see facilitating that as being one more way uh, that users uh, can be engaged on the platform and can be uh, actively using the platform for, for the different needs. There's a large number of small businesses, I believe it's about you know, 90 million at least, uh, that are active on, on Facebook's uh, different properties. And you know, for them, payments and the ability to really move, move value could be quite important, uh, especially because many of these, uh, even if they're, if they're trying to pay for ads or if they're trying to sell some goods, you know, payments are a friction and payments may be costly uh, in, in their current framework. So again, that, that's another uh, that's another important dimension. Uh, and more broadly, I think this relates also to, I think, some of the pushback on privacy. With Calibra, there's really a strong effort in showing that the company can innovate uh, around different types of business models and with a different type of uh, long-term view about you know, how the product could shape over time. Uh, one of the things that was uh, near and dear to my heart when, you know, when I was probing David in, in that initial meeting about, okay, uh, if we want to design this right, uh, for example, what about privacy? And uh, I think from the very beginning, there was an understanding that people, uh, you know, at least in the U.S., in many other Western countries, do not want their social and financial data to be commingled. Uh, that's something that many feel strongly about. And so if you look at some of the commitments that have been made uh, for Calibra, the idea is really to explore uh, new types of business models in the long run uh, and new types of innovation and applications uh, that do not involve that link. And so that, that was something that was really important to me and uh, to many other people uh, on the team. And, and so I think, you know, um, when you're part of a platform and an ecosystem like Libra, first of all, you're pushing the company to be on the frontier of a really important wave of innovation. Uh, but second, there's, there's strong complementarities with, with things that are already happening on the platform. And, you know, going back to the cash example, uh, there's, there's people in, in different regions, and this is a small, relatively smaller use case, but they're trying to buy ads and, and can't because they don't really have a payment solution. So there, there's also very practical reasons for why uh, this could be good for, for the ecosystem. Okay, so it sounds like 
from Facebook's perspective, it's a way to diversify revenue to bring in a stream that isn't necessarily dependent on advertising or selling data, but that maybe then within the app itself, the way you guys are making money is by charging fees. I, I wasn't clear on that, actually, because I, I've seen, like, for instance, in the white paper, it said low to no cost. Um, and then I saw Kevin uh, say in a in an article in The Verge that there might be a small fee just to cover fraud and chargebacks, but not a fee to use the payment itself. So can can you just define, you know, or, or maybe you haven't figured it out yet. I don't know. Do, do you know what the fee structure will look like to use Calibra? Yeah. So on Calibra, again, a lot of this is still work in progress, but the, the goal is certainly to go uh, as closely to zero as possible, right? Because uh, again, going back to the 7% charge for remittances on average globally, uh, the World Bank uh, Sustainable uh, Development Goals uh, as a goal of 3%. And so I think this is a network that can push much lower uh, than 3%. And, you know, again, close to zero as possible. I, I think where fees may, may be uh, more, more uh, reasonable is actually on the merchant side. So, and this reflects, I think, some of the uh, current business models where consumers uh, don't pay for some of these fees. And then there's small fees uh, for merchant services. Uh, merchants need all the additional feature and functionality around chargebacks, fraud, and everything else. But again, this is this is an area uh, that we will have to see, and it may also vary by region depending on what the integrations look like. Uh, the objective is, you know, over over the short term and medium term, uh, to really bring this um, available at, at almost zero cost. Uh, but then again, once you start thinking about AML, KYC, there there are additional structural costs that, of course, you can't subsidize uh, for 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 long term. And so I think it'd be important for a wallet like Calibra to understand what is the best way to to cover those fees and ensure that the platform is both secure, but also responds to the kind of functionality people have come to expect uh, from a digital payment service. You know, if you're locked out of your wallet or if you your wallet gets taken over, uh, those are all additional features that I think protect consumers. And so those are all features that that Calibra will support, and and of course they will come at a cost. Okay. And so, yeah, that was my other question about the chargebacks. So it's not literally that you're like reversing the Libra transaction. It sounds like that's not possible. You're just charging the fees so that way you can make people whole if anything goes wrong. Is that correct? Yes. And and, okay. and again, if a transaction is between a merchant that's using uh, Calibra or a user that's using Calibra, in that case, it's even simpler because it could be reconciled within the system. If it's between two wallets that have a you know business relationship with it, within each other because maybe they transact often with each other, uh, there could also be an operational path there. If it's on the public chain, yes, uh, you know that couldn't be reversed, but of course, you know the the agreement with the end user uh, would cover that. Oh, oh, now I get it. Okay, okay. So basically, you're sort of like a Coinbase where if the payment is happening all within the Calibra ecosystem, then you guys can just update your records. But if it's, you know, between a Calibra user and somebody not in the Calibra system, but it's still using the Libra currency, then that obviously probably can't be reversed, but you can make them whole. Is that okay? I think it will really depend on, on you know, what triggered the reversal. Um, so, but my sense is that it will reflect a lot of what people have come to expect from existing platforms. So it won't be uh, different than that. Okay. So now let's talk about the regulators again. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what what signals are you looking for from U.S. regulators to decide whether or not you should go forward or not go forward? 
Can you break it down maybe by the particular agencies? Like, do you need some sign from the SEC that this isn't a security or are you waiting for something from Congress? Or like, obviously, then here we've got the G7 saying you guys should not go ahead until you've proven that it's safe and secure. So just do you have kind of like a checklist of the things that you need before you can say, like, we're okay? So, you know, I, I think a lot of these regulators are, have already given us some homework in terms of like what are the kind of questions that they want more detailed answers on. And so I would look for, you know, further announcement by the association in, in the coming months about all, many different dimensions that people care about. I already mentioned, for example, AML and KYC. Uh, that's a dimension that many regulators, uh, for example, Treasury and, and others are focused on. Um, but but again, I think like we like we said before, uh, we want to launch this once we have kind of a green light and, and we feel like the, all the stakeholders are kind of happy with the design. And so, you know, in the U.S., of course, in, in Switzerland, the relevant one uh, is FINMA. And uh, I think what's been uh, great about Switzerland as a home for this is that FINMA and, and the regulatory framework, as you know, in Switzerland has been uh, fairly advanced when it comes to cryptocurrencies, blockchain, stable coins and some of these issues. Uh, so, you know, you may have seen the FINMA guidelines on payment networks. Um, those are things that we're looking really closely at uh, to really ensure that this network can not only integrate, but also operate uh, across different regions. And that's really the challenge here. There's no global framework for anything like this. And so we're kind of the first ones to explore that. And uh, that requires additional work. And obviously, I'm sure you're aware that the scenario that potentially the Libra Association could go forward without Facebook has come up a few different times. What would need to happen for Facebook to say, okay, you know what, this is the way that this will go forward is Facebook will leave and will no longer be a part of the Libra Association? Again, uh, I think, you know, we've seen Facebook's uh, commitment to this um, over a long period of time, also in face of uh, very high pressure. It's not a project that uh, has gained Facebook, I think, any, any favors or friends. But, you know, if you roll back to the mission, I think Facebook is in a good position to really delivering on, on that goal of financial inclusion, uh, having platforms like WhatsApp and Messenger uh, reach and, and connect people and allow them to move value. Again, I think you'll see tremendous pressure on all of the members as, as we go through. And, and that's, that's really important uh, for the project too. I think the ultimate test is that the association, and this goes back to the economic design and, and why blockchain is so important. You don't, the moment you have like one single entity that is a single point of failure for the association, then the project is, is not really designed right or hasn't reached the stage where it's designed right. Um, so I think in the future, it shouldn't matter whatever entity leaves or joins, um, the, the project should be self-standing and, and be able to support itself and evolve. Uh, so that, that you can think of that as an important test of, uh, of the association itself. And one thing I was curious about was that in one of the initial white papers, you stated that one of the goals of the association would be to minimize the association's role as a manager of the Libra Reserve and instead fully automate reserve management. I didn't know what fully automated mean. Does that mean like using some kind of algorithm to to manage it? Or like, obviously here in blockchain world, we've got, you know, things like DAOs and <laughs> where people can vote with their tokens. So I didn't know what, what does that mean? Like, do you have a vision for that or... Yeah, and again, you know, many of these are hypotheticals and are projecting us into the future. Uh, but, I, you know, when we looked at all the designs, and there's many designs in the crypto space, which I think are really clever. But, you know, from an economics perspective, my main 
my main concern about many of them is that at, at their core, they're always based on expectations. And so if you look at some of the things that have been experimented with, if you have a tr- change in expectations of any type, whether about the technology, the market, the regulatory uncertainty, uh, all of those assets or many of those assets can really collapse to zero. And so here we wanted something that didn't have that property. And so taking a step back, and this is something that I think it's, it's misunderstood about Libra, but Libra is really designed to be a complement to good monetary policy, to good central banking, uh, not a substitute. And so the future where the reserve could be automated or, or could even fade away is actually one where, you know, maybe central banks have worked hard to develop central bank digital currencies. And those can be just integrated. Maybe it's a, you know, a cross chain uh, link between two different blockchains. Um, you don't need to manage a reserve uh, and, and do all these additional operations to digitize assets because they're already digital. Uh, and, and again, in, in that scenario, you can think of central banks, of course, uh, keeping their domain over monetary policy, over building uh, stable assets that people can trust and rely on, and the Libra network on top, enabling all sort of functionality across borders uh, in terms of prog- programmability through Move and so on. And so there's really like this concept of a public-private partnership where the public sector, of course, is in charge of the public good, which is retaining the value of those assets and managing, uh, issuing them uh, and doing everything else they do today. And you have layered on top a very efficient payment network that can really activate all sort of new use cases that build on those assets. And so, you know, when the word automation, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of inappropriate in the sense that it would be like a scenario where the CBDCs are present and you can kind of integrate from the bottom up these assets on the network. And then the association doesn't even need to manage uh, a basket, doesn't need to need uh, to manage the assets because the assets are just created and maintained by somebody else and they're linked on, on the Libra blockchain when they need to be used. Hmm, that's fascinating. All right. So let's talk about something else that has been a huge theme, uh, especially this last week. So whoever controls the uh, dominant global stablecoin, whatever it is, that they will be hugely powerful. And um, and obviously, whichever existing currencies that that global stablecoin is tied to will also benefit. And that appeared to be the basis of Facebook's argument during the recent congressional hearing featuring Mark Zuckerberg. So Libra's ability to thwart the threat from China was, you know, I, I guess, a big part of the thinking for why maybe the U.S. at least should support Libra now. And I thought that kind of the uh, argument from Facebook seemed like a a pretty big contrast from a few years ago when Mark did the smog jog in Beijing and was learning Mandarin, um, you know, all in his effort to have Facebook enter the Chinese market. So how did Facebook's attempt to operate in China inform this current thinking that Libra is the best counterweight to China's digital currency plans. So, you know, a lot of those conversations and discussions uh, are are before me even joining uh, the Facebook team. So I I can't really comment to that, but I I can speak towards the the broader, I I think, context. So when you think about it right now, and this is not actually specific to blockchain, uh, if you look at some of the conversations around 5Gs, uh, some of the conversations around quantum computing, there's a number of different technological sectors where there's different approaches to innovation. And, uh, you know, financial services and digital digital money, uh, of course, it's one of them. Uh, I think we, we have a current infrastructure and a current way, uh, for example, uh, where, where, you know, the U.S. can, in, can enforce sanctions and, and other toolkits 
in the in the current system. I think what, what what's important to realize here, first of all, is that innovation will come in different flavors and forms. And as you all know, blockchain is just, and, and cryptocurrency in general, is just a tool. And so the way you apply that tool really defines the emergent properties uh, of that system. So with Libra, what was important to us was that the emergent properties uh, were close to some of the Western values um, that, um, you know, you can think about dimensions like privacy, dimensions like uh, free market competition on top of the network, uh, ability to startups to enter and compete, all these different elements that have been seeded into the economic design. Uh, stability monetary policy. And that's why, you know, the basket, the proposed basket as, as those currencies uh, in its set. All these different dimensions were, were there to, to really build a network um, that, that can offer a lot of choice and can uh, port over uh, some of those values. Uh, but of course, you know, I think we'll see innovation uh, from many different entities and many different countries. Uh, there'll be different approaches. And I think what would be interesting to see is which one of these networks can actually ultimately deliver uh, the most value to, to users across the globe. Um, but it is important to keep in mind that I think there's a tension between different approaches, right? So more controlled versus more distributed ones. And, and that's a fascinating part of the entire blockchain space. Issues of free speech and financial power have come up a lot in the last month, both around Facebook, uh, especially with political ads, and around the NBAs and Blizzard Entertainment's sort of like voluntary censorship or um, punishment of free speech to please the Chinese Communist Party. Is there some sense within Facebook now that financial freedom and free speech are related in some fashion or that financial freedom is an extension of free speech? And if so, is that kind of part of your mission now with Libra as well? Or in general, how do you think about those two themes? I mean, those are really complex issues that, you know, transcend money and the flow of value. Um, but I think it, it's really important to realize that if, you, if you're able to build a network uh, that allows for competition and allows for different types of players to come in and build different solutions, eventually consumers will, will have choice. And so through that choice, they have an indirect way to vote with their wallet, uh, no pun there, and, and express their preferences. So, you know, this, this relates to everything from issues like privacy to uh, would you rather have a subscription model or pay as you go. Uh, when consumers have choice, there's a mechanism on a platform like Libra uh, to express their values and to have a low friction way uh, to participate in governance. And so that's, that's I think, what's really important uh, in a network like Libra is that you allow for all those different approaches to, to come in and coexist. And then the market can sort out, you know, which ones work in certain regions and not in others. Um, that's, I think, it's an important property, combined with the fact that, again, in Libra at scale, no single entity can unilaterally shape the evolution of the network. I think that's an important guarantee uh, to really reflect a democratic uh, representation of different uh, stakeholders and, 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 and users on, on that system. So that's, that's where I think uh, it will also matter for issues like free speech and other values that people deeply care about. The countries whose citizens could benefit most from Libra, I guess leaving China aside, <laughs> although I guess they have plenty of other options now. Um, those are basically also the countries that have an incentive to either block or at least put up hurdles to the adoption of Libra. And I mean, you can already see, I think, like India, this is even before Libra came on the scene, was really, you know, has been really opposed to cryptocurrencies. And I'm wondering, does the Calibra or the does Calibra or the Libra Association have any ideas on how to overcome 
this fact that the countries that could benefit from Libra the most are also the ones that have an incentive to kind of block it? So, you know, those are real challenges and relates to our conversation uh, that we were having before about last mile frictions. Uh, I think more broadly, you know, if the network uh, provides value, take the example of remittances. In some regions of the globe, remittances are larger than FDI, so foreign direct investment. Uh, They're a meaningful economic flow that can have really positive impact on the ability for an economic region to develop you know, my uh, when, I, when I was at MIT, my colleague Tavneet Struri uh, did a lot of work on mobile money. And what's interesting about mobile money, for example, in Kenya is that when these flows of remittances reach directly women in the household, they're way more effective in being converted into, for example, school tuition fees and things that, that really help uh, that, that family entity to, to grow and, and, and kind of withstand economic hardship. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, the reaction by some countries and some countries are already banning uh, cryptocurrencies more broadly. And so Calibra won't be able to operate in those regions. Uh, some others may try initially to just block this because they see it as, uh, as a threat uh, in different shapes or forms. But going back to that conversation with different regulators, I think, you know, and, and things like the G7 stablecoin report, I think it's really important to take uh, the concerns of different types of countries seriously and, and work through, you know, what is the scenario in which Libra can still fulfill its mission uh, within the specific needs of a certain uh, locality. Uh, it will be a working process. I think, you know, some regions have been extremely successful at digitizing cash, think about China, or even in India, uh, first starting with the identity system and then the unified payment solution. But all these systems are not really interoperable with each other. And so you land with uh, a system of, you know, very national payment infrastructure that doesn't talk to each other. And there are global needs. And so I think more broadly, if Libra can become this efficient medium of exchange across different regions, uh, over time, I think it'll be in, in the interest of many of these regions to come online and, and be connected to the rest of the globe. Uh, but again, I, I think it'll be, it'll be a process that takes a number of years to, to unfold. Well, one other thing I was wondering was, so if Libra does become widely adopted in weaker economies, and soon we see a majority of citizens, and let's just say, you know, one of those economies starts holding their savings in Libra, then couldn't that weaken that central bank? And then would would Libra, in effect, play a similar role to that of an actual central bank? And, you know, what, what kind of effect do you think that would have on the stability of that country? Yeah, so first of all, it's important to remember that, you know, Libra is really optimized for cross-border transactions. It's unlikely that you'll be using Libra to pay for coffee domestically because now you're kind of taking on uh, foreign exchange exposure. And so it is a medium that's really optimized for that uh, country-to-country payment. Now, in some regions, of course, the local currency uh, may be highly volatile. And so people may look at Libra as, as a store of value of sorts. But here, the challenge, again, is one where the wallets and the entities operating in that region will have to comply with the region's rules. And so if there are capital controls, they'll be applicable to Libra uh, in a very similar way that they're applicable today to, to banking and financial institutions. And so the idea is that, you know, that, that really kind of changes the, the relationship with um, with local monetary policy. Uh, the idea is, again, for Libra to integrate and, and, and not be uh, a threat to monetary policy, whether it's, you know, a large nation or a smaller one. And, um, 
I think you know it will take it will take a number of years for um, really developing a framework that allows, for example, for cross border payments to come in, uh, especially in regions that are way more worried about capital outflows or people running away from their home currency. You know, as you were talking about, there is going to be friction for people when they're converting in and out of Libra. So then I just want to talk about this tension of like how much it is that Libra really will help the unbanked. Like, let's say that I'm in India and I'm having to convert from rupees to to buy Libra. I pay a little fees. I pay some fees. I lose a little in the exchange rate. But then later when I want to use that money, then again, I'm going to pay some fees and lose on the exchange rate to convert back to rupees. So in what scenarios would it make sense for somebody to buy Libra? Would it literally be just if they're sending money somewhere abroad? So, of course, it starts with the receiving and sending of money. Uh, So think about the remittance use case. Uh, But then over time, I think this is where the founding members and the broader set of initial uh, participants in the association is really important. You could imagine all sort of new use cases. So maybe you receive the remittance through your telco operator, and that telco operator is part of the Libra Association. And so now you can use it to buy airtime, uh, to spend it as mobile money, or maybe you know the, the partner of the association that you're relying on is a merchant, a merchant that is active in that region. And now you can take your remittance and spend it uh, and exchange it for go- goods and services. Removing those last mile frictions, I think it's something that, again, will take a long period of time, but it's really important for ensuring that not only you're cutting and reducing fees on the sending the, the you know value from A to B, but also in what can you do once you've received it? How much friction are you now incurring uh, in a specific region? An important feature here of the design is that uh, there's an incentive for different private entities and exchanges and other intermediaries to come in and fill that gap. So when you look at the reserve, the reserve will interface with a group of uh, authorized resellers that will make a market for Libra. And essentially, these will be the entities that will capture and transmit market demand. Do you need more coins? Do you need less coins? So essentially, do we need to mint and burn uh, at the reserve level? They will be able to charge a small spread. And similarly, they will be interfacing with uh, exchanges, including some of the crypto ones, for example. And these exchanges will also be able to charge a small fee. Now, the good thing about the spread is that if I see someone in my region charging to I have a spread, maybe that's a big opportunity for me to come in and compete with them. And so over time, the the competitive forces on on and off ramps hopefully will drive people to be very creative and entrepreneurial and allow all sort of on and off ramps uh, to develop. I think there's an opportunity here. And, uh, you know, other startups in the crypto space have tried this before, but there's massive friction of uh, building different types of on and off ramps where if you do have uh, KYC, you can really allow, for example, a convenience store or some other endpoint uh, to become a way where consumers can come in and out of the network. This is really interesting. And now I I really see what the potential would have been if you had had uh, Visa and MasterCard as part of the association. But I guess from what you said earlier, it sounds like they can still build something on the Libra network, maybe you know, just not as part of the association itself. But uh, obviously, then, if that were the case, they would have a ton of different merchants in countries all over the world, obviously, that, um, you know, where users who receive payments in Libra could then just also make payments in that Libra. So, okay, Um, so why don't we move on? I just I'm conscious of the time. Uh, One other thing, obviously, here in the US, that's been hugely 
important to the regulators and and obviously to everyday people. Just like if I, you know, think about discussions I've had with people outside the crypto world, you know, the number one thing they say when they hear that Facebook is building a cryptocurrency usually has something to do with data and privacy. And I noticed in the congressional hearing that Mark Zuckerberg said that Facebook is building a privacy program for people's data that's equivalent to Sarbanes-Oxley. And he said that it, you know, will apply to your handling of people's financial data, includes things like quarterly audits. Can you tell us more about this program? Like what data it covers? Um, how does it work against things like, you know, law enforcement requests? You know, what level of detail you'll have about particular users or transactions, stuff like that? Yeah, so I can speak more about, you know, Calibra, of course. Um the idea here is that, you know, um, how do you ensure that those two data sets uh, are not connected? You have a number of solutions. Um, and, and essentially, over time, the goal is really to to push this uh, to, to encryption and all these other mechanisms, access control. Uh, there's a number of different technical and, of course, uh, organizational uh, solutions that really allow you to, to prove at any point in time that, that it's actually the case. And so... Uh, from the early design, and this actually required a massive, um, you know, engineering effort, really to think through, um, you know, how, how do you keep these two systems completely separate? How do you, you know, essentially ensure that what you're promising is, is actually uh, always, always true? And, and so that 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 work is, I think, it's really important uh, because at the end of the story, um, you know. A wallet like Calibra will have to earn users' trust. Uh, otherwise, there'll be other alternatives on the network. And so it's really important that those controls and those uh, different uh, data data checkboxes are, are always maintained. Okay. And so then I actually just want to ask a little bit more about this Bank Secrecy Act and AML, which is on the ground, like... Can you walk me through what it will be like as a user when uh, I try to open a Calibra wallet? What steps will it walk me through? What information will it want from me? And I want to think about this in the context also of, you know, your target audience, which is the unbanked, you know, what kinds of data do they normally have or, or data or ID verification do they normally have? And how are you thinking about kind of both the requirements of these regulations as well as uh, just sort of how things operate in the real world for this unbanked population. Yeah, I think, you know, from Calibra's perspective, uh, it's really important that uh, the network is safe and secure and, and cannot be abused. And so there will be a very strong AML and KYC program, uh, which, of course, you know, will be a, a friction on onboarding. So sometimes people think about, you know, Facebook as uh, more than uh, 2 billion uh, users. And so this network um, around the wallet could grow really rapidly. But they do forget that there'll be substantial friction in, in, in joining Calibra. You will have to upload, you know, your national document. And I think here, uh, through a combination of new technological solutions, uh, the goal is really to not only meet, but really exceed the current standards around AML and KYC. I think, you know, we tend to forget how ineffective the current system is at, at blocking uh, different types of financial crime. Um, so, yeah, the user experience, uh, again, will, will require uh, a full KYC process and, uh, you know, the, the other expectations of systems like this uh, will all be fulfilled. 
you know, from, from your point of view of the unbanked, uh, that, that's going to be a, a challenge. And so this is where I think the association working collectively, uh, on standards like an open identity protocol, uh, and also solving on the ground through NGOs, uh, some of these issues in regions where you don't have a reliable identity system, uh, will take time. Uh, I, it's, I agree it's not optimal in the sense that it excludes uh, some segments that are probably the ones that would benefit uh, the most on day one. Uh, but, you know, these last mile issues are real and they will need uh, a lot of work by different stakeholders, not just Calibra, uh, to be resolved. And so do the, have the NGOs given you ideas on how to resolve that tension? I think there's been small-scale experiments in, in different regions you know, uh, take for example refugee camps, and 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 there's many international organizations, uh, including the UN and others, that have done work around this. Um, so again, I think from the NGO perspective, they realize this is this is a massive challenge that not even a network like Libra on its own uh, can solve. And uh, I think my my personal hope is that an open identity protocol um, that you know, the, the association may develop uh, over time uh, could really help. Also because it could lower friction for different governments and different entities across the globe to coordinate around shared infrastructure and, and also ensure at the same time that all of this is developed with privacy by design in mind. Uh, so the association, uh, I think, in its early work stream has been thinking really seriously about how do we ensure privacy by design and how, how do we scale this up over time on, on different elements like identity, KYC, and, and everything else. Okay, yeah, what I, I want to ask you more about this open identity standard, but I, I wanted to make one comment too, which is that I think one idea for the NGOs is also to train people in using non-custodial wallets, right? Because if those are going to exist on the network, then um, that would be a way of like them kind of becoming quote unquote banked without having to use a bank. All right. So, but I wanted to ask about this open identity standard. So, you know, I read that in one of your white papers and I wondered if you guys were still going to work on that based on the reaction, uh, as you could see uh, from the wider public about the idea of Facebook having more data on users. But it sounds like you're saying this could be something like a protocol that the Libra Association creates. Is that is that the idea? And if so, um, you know, what would that look like? Would it would it be based on your Facebook identity or or how would that work? Yeah, so and again a lot of this is is early stage work at the association level and so I, I can only really speak on behalf of Calibra on this, but the intention is definitely not to make it a Facebook standard, um, but to make it something that is fully interoperable, that gives users control over their data. And, uh, you know, ultimately that avoids fragmentation. It's actually a very similar problem to the one that we face on, on cross-border payments. Uh, we have all these silent solutions that don't speak to each other. Uh, I think, you know, David uh, was joking that uh, after he guided the acquisition of, of Venmo uh, at, at PayPal, you can still not send a payment between two, those two different platforms. Identity, I think, is in a similar spot. You need something that is an open, uh, open standard so that people feel comfortable building, uh, on, on something where they know that they'll be on a leveling playing field with their competitors. I think it's, it's, it's from an economics perspective. What is interesting about all of these problems 
is that there are massive coordination challenges. Would we all benefit from you know, a cross-border network uh, that allows for cheap, fast, and secure payments? I think the answer is yes. How do we get to coordinate on that is, is the big challenge. Similarly, on identity, I think there's been a number of uh, projects around more open structures for identity. And, and some of these, I, I think, are getting traction. And I'm sure the Libra Association would be interested in, in partnering and, and, and opening up to, to what's happening already organically. Uh, but more broadly... Identity is a massive challenge for many of the initial founding members. They operate in many different countries. Uh, they may have, you know, uh, they may be uh, interact with users or suppliers or, or, or different workers in, in different regions. And so lifting up standards on identity, I think, is the best way to eventually deliver on the mission of financial inclusion. And, and also going back to your previous point, uh, non-custodial wallets can play an important role in seeding some of these early use cases. And, and even if they, if they uh, are mostly focused on small balances and, and small cash-like transactions, that could be very meaningful for some of the segments that are severely uh, underbanked. And so going forward, um, do you still think that the association will be able to launch the network in the first half of 2020? Again, uh, you know, the timeline is um, is in the hands, uh, I think, on, on many dimensions of different regulators and regulatory bodies. Uh, the goal is, is of course, to uh, meet that deadline, but also to get things right. So, you know, it would be useless if we launched early and we didn't have kind of the blessing uh, of the core institutions. So uh, I think it will really depend on uh, how much we can improve the design and really show concrete proposals. I think, again, what's been exciting for me is that now we're working together with a number of founding members that have really clever ideas around issues like AML and KYC or are really thinking about privacy and other dimensions of the whole ecosystem. And so now there's there's a lot more talent that is thinking about the same problems. And so hopefully we'll be able to show that not only we've taken a lot of the feedback uh, at art and very seriously, and but we're also really iterating on that and trying to find a solution to uh, often being pulled in many different directions, but one that can satisfy, again, every, everybody that, that, that really matters for making this network a success. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Christian, Libra, and Calibra, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, which is shorter, a bit newsier, and now features a short news recap, be sure to check that out. Also, find out what I think are the top crypto stories each week by signing up for my email newsletter at unchainedpodcast.com. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening. 